You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, an alphabet miss. CFO Ruth Porat tells me the ads business took a hit after suspending service in Russia, and that advertisers also pulled back a bit more broadly in Europe. Our chat about the search giant's latest earnings report coming up. Plus, what is free speech, and how will Elon Musk change Twitter to achieve his version of it? Does he even know? We'll debate with David Sachs and Tim O'Brien. And the ring that tracks your waking and not waking moments. My exclusive interview with Aura's new CEO about how he intends to compete in wearables with giants like Apple. That is later this hour. We'll get to all of that in a moment. But first, though, I want to dive deeper into Alphabet and Microsoft results. I want to bring in Futurum's Dan Newman now. Dan, of course, you cover and follow both. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Alphabet. Ruth Porat uh, telling me on the phone that, yes, the biggest impact in terms of revenue uh, and and contribution to this miss was the suspension of the vast majority of commercial activities in Russia. She also said beyond that, there was a bit of a pullback on ad spend in Europe. We also saw a pullback at Snap when it came to advertisers and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. What's your take on this? Well, I think the whole advertising market is starting to bring some question marks. Is it going to get softer? You have these macro forces, geopolitical forces going on in, in Ukraine and Russia, Europe. And then, of course, here we've got a lot of macroeconomic conditions that are looking like we may see a recession. We're definitely seeing a pullback and the sentiment towards tech as a whole is going is, is negative. And if Alphabet missed today, I can only imagine what Meta and Twitter might be in for later this week. It's definitely concerning. But having said that, I thought Alphabet's numbers were really pretty good. They were very close. The growth was good, 23% top line growth. This is a company that's performing very well. And I think that stock buyback is an indicator that they believe their value is still there. And they're going to they're gonna spend money to repurchase those shares if people keep selling. 
Now, the cloud, of course, was a contribution to that, but I want to talk about the ad business first. Uh, she was asked on the call whether uh, Netflix and uh, the pullback there is a concern, and she brought up YouTube and how well YouTube's ad business is, is doing. Of course, we know Netflix is not an ad-supported business. She said, we continue to be pleased with the ongoing innovation at YouTube. It's an ad-supported business. Time spent there continues to grow. YouTube Music and Premium were up substantially in the quarter. We're continuing to innovate there across the board. Interestingly, she wouldn't comment. I tried to, I tried to get her thoughts on Elon Musk buying Twitter and Twitter potentially getting out of the ads business. But do you see, uh, you know, a broader reshuffling here uh, in the ads business, given what's happening at Twitter, the macroeconomic environment, the Apple ad changes that seem to be disproportionately impacting Meta and Snap? Yeah, I think, I think Alphabet's going to be in pretty good shape and they're going to be able to sustain growth. The changes and modifications to YouTube have largely been well received by the marketplace. I think TikTok's been probably its biggest challenge and maybe had a little bit to do with the near miss on YouTube versus what analysts had expected. But overall, I think the YouTube business, it's been growing, the television service cord cutting. There's a lot of positive tailwinds for that particular business. And I think the market is largely appreciating what Google and uh, YouTube are doing there. So. I, I still, I'm still positive on the company. The numbers just weren't that bad. I just think the sentiment in the market is just really, really low right now. Now, Google is still trying to close this acquisition of Mandy at the cybersecurity firm, $5.4 billion. Uh, we know that the DOJ has asked both Google and Mandiant for more information. I asked about the likelihood of the deal closing. She talked about how they believe this will increase competition and help Google Cloud compete more effectively with Amazon, Microsoft, and others. Um, let's talk a little bit about the cloud and, of course, Microsoft. How is Google Cloud doing with respect to Microsoft? I know it's still in third place. Yeah. Um... Google has been competing. Of course, we've also seen Oracle with a big uptick in its business, but Google's growth has been really strong. It still came in over 40%. Now, the concern has been it's still not profitable, but they did narrow losses in the most recent quarter. Um, I still feel that the company is willing to make those CapEx investments. Uh, Google understands that its ambitions with the cloud business are not to be in third place. Their ambitions are to compete and to be on par or above the competition with Azure and AWS. So they're going to have to spend big. And I think the market has to realize it's going to take some time to get there. But some of their key partnerships, investments that have been made, expansion and CapEx spending are all indicators and of course 40% growth. Having said that, Azure is still growing at over 40% as well. So all that spending isn't necessarily accelerating Google's uh, achievement of parity with Azure. And we'll see with AWS later this week. Which brings us to Microsoft earnings and it's a B. And I wonder if you think Microsoft is better insulated from some of these macroeconomic headwinds and this macroeconomic uncertainty that we're feeling right now in other big tech yeah. companies. Yeah, I like the enterprise play. I feel like enterprise tech is a little more deflationary. Companies are going to spend on cloud, data center, AI, uh, other data analytics and software that are going to create more scale and lower costs. You got, you know, high costs related to worker right now and to finding employees. Uh, you've got other costs growing through inflation. And, you know, if you can add automation, AI, ML, technologies, and Microsoft is really well positioned there. And we also saw IBM do really well this quarter. Some of these companies that have more consumer oriented businesses 
businesses are going to have to deal with, um, you know, some of the discretionary spending potentially going down as the economic climate gets tighter. So I, I do think Microsoft is more insulated. It's more diversified. It's got that large enterprise business, the commercial business. Um, and I think it puts them in a good position to not be as uh, hurt quite as much by all the things that are going on outside of the company's control. All right, Dan Newman, Futurum Research. We're going to continue to follow the calls uh, as the Alphabet and Microsoft call progress. Dan, thank you, as always, for joining us. As the deal was being sealed for Elon Musk to buy Twitter... He tweeted he hopes even his worst critics remain on the service because that is what free speech means. But what changes will he actually make to create his version of the global town square? Does he even know yet? To debate, I'm joined by David Sachs, co-founder of Craft Ventures and co-host of the All In podcast, along with Bloomberg Opinions, Tim O'Brien. Looking forward to a spirited conversation for both of you here. David, I want to start with you, and that is a simple question. What does free speech mean to you? Well, I, what it means to me is that we don't have arbitrary censorship rules on the platform, that Twitter will act as an open town square, it will be an honest referee of the debate, but it will not try to choose winners and losers in the debate. And what we've seen over the past few years is a growing movement towards censorship, where it started with isolated individuals who are sort of unpopular provocateurs like Milo Yiannopoulos or an Alex Jones. They were deplatformed. Then you had a sitting president of the United States being deplatformed. Then during COVID, we saw entire categories of thought being deplatformed. You couldn't criticize various aspects of where the virus came from or, or mass mandates or vaccine policies. And now more recently, we're seeing that same sort of idea of banning entire categories of thought being applied to more and more uh, platforms, for example, opinion, dissenting opinion on climate change. So I think basically the censorship has gone way too far and Elon wants to roll it back. And I think that tweet you showed up on the screen really uh, indicates pretty well where I think he wants to take it, which he does not want to go far beyond what the law allows. So he's not saying that anything goes. The law does not protect, the First Amendment does not protect many kinds of speech, but he doesn't want to go far beyond that in terms of restricting speech. And that is, I think, a healthy correction that's long overdue. We're actually getting some headlines from Twitter's 8K, which was just filed, getting some more terms of the deal here. I'll read those out as we have them. Uh, the first headline that Twitter required to pay a parent termination fee of $1 billion, presumably if the deal uh, doesn't go through. That's the same as a reverse termination fee. Tim, I'll throw it back to you. What is your definition of free speech? And do you think that Elon Musk can and will protect it? Well, you know, I think free speech is being used as a proxy for unfettered speech. And I'm actually not a fan of unfettered speech. I don't think propaganda should be uh, allowed to run rampant and misinformation be allowed to run rampant on social media platforms. And it has. Um, I, I don't think um, calling someone like Alex Jones a, a, a provocateur really captures the totality of, of how he's used media platforms. Uh, I don't think, um, uh, we, there are already a lot of categories of speech that, that aren't permitted on Twitter. Would David be comfortable with pornography being on Twitter or snuff films or Russian propaganda or Chinese propaganda? Um, I, I don't, I, I think the idea of conflating the notion of free speech with political 
arguments about left-right censorship is 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 a is a is a straw man that's being used to describe a problem um, that actually doesn't exist to the same extent as misinformation does, and and I don't think that Elon Musk has much of interest at all. In, in solving the misinformation problem on Twitter and putting things in place that would allow for responsible vetting, not censoring David. the left or the right, mm -hmm. but actually monitoring the platform so it's a better forum for factual exchanges. David, I want to let you respond to that. You tweeted that the Berlin Wall of censorship fell in your words, but, but, but are you okay with some of the examples that Tim outlined there? No, I'm not. I'm not okay with, for example, bots being on the platform, which the platform is absolutely rife with bots. And I think Elon has already promised he's going to crack down on bots. And he has expertise at his disposal, the premier AI uh, engineers, who he can deploy to solve that problem. I actually think but that Elon's going to make... But isn't anonymous speech free speech, too? Some would not, if it's fake, not if it's fake speech. So, so the, the first, hold on a second, let, let me finish, let me finish. Okay, so first of all, the, the biggest misnomer, mischaracterization about free speech in general is that it means anything goes. It doesn't. The Supreme Court has basically defined nine major categories of speech that are not protected by the First Amendment because they're considered to be harmful speech. So for example, uh, the First Amendment is not a defense to fraud. If you want to defraud somebody, you can't claim that your speech was protected by the First Amendment. When you put bots on Twitter and pretend to be someone you're not, when you pretend, when you basically violate the authenticity requirement, you are basically perpetrating a kind of fraud. That is not free speech, that's fake speech. It is perfectly fair game under any kind of free speech policy to take down those kinds of bots. And I fully expect that Elon will be far more effective at doing that than the current management of Twitter because they've been unable to do that. There are many other kinds oh, so of David, speech. Tell me, tell me what's the mechanism for achieving that in your view? What's the mechanism for making sure um, that um, categories of expression that you think are problematic don't service on Twitter? Well, it's not about what I think is problematic. There are tried and true categories no, no, I mean, of speech what, what, that. What are the what? Are, what's the what is the methodology for going after any category of 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 expression on the platform that may be problematic? Well, I'm trying to explain it. I mean, so basically, we have 230 years of Supreme Court case law in which the Supreme Court has wrestled with these issues over decades. Not like you know some content moderation. Uh, employees at Twitter who are just figuring this out right now. The Supreme Court's been wrestling with this for hundreds of years, and they've defined nine categories of speech that are not permitted and not protected under the First Amendment. For example, fighting words under the Chaplinsky decision. Any type of ethnic or racial slur that people but, could but make you know, David, on Twitter, that, that hold on a applies, second, that, you, that could applies, define, you could define, you could define, that's about the I government. Government, I understand. government oversight of speech. We're talking about a private platform here. Exactly. So is your what, point then that, that you'll take categories of speech that the government monitors and essentially graft those onto a private platform? I would take categories of speech that the Supreme Court has already said are not protected because in their opinion, those categories of speech can be dangerous. And I would then apply similar rules to content moderation. I think that's what Elon is hinting with when he says he will not go far beyond what the law prohibits. So in other words, look, Supreme Court already prohibits fighting words or doesn't protect them. Okay. So, you know, if you're worried about Twitter being a cesspool of ethnic or racial slurs, those can clearly be prohibited under the Chaplinsky decision. If you're worried about harassment or stalking, that can clearly be prohibited. If you're worried about fraud, that can be prohibited. If you're worried about incitement 
to commit a crime, to commit imminent lawless action, that can be prohibited. Why? Because the First Amendment does not protect those categories of speech. And this whole argument, see, basically what's happening well, what about, here... Well, as we're going through this list, what about... Chinese or Russian propaganda. And, and, and let's talk about, let, before you answer, David, Jeff Bezos tweeted, proposed that the Chinese government just gained some leverage over the global down, town square given the strong relationship between Tesla and China. What do you think about that, David? Well, t Twitter, Twitter has already been allowing the wolf warrior of Beijing and the Ayatollah Khomeini to post on Twitter. They don't seem to have a problem with various governments around the world posting what they think. The problem is when those governments pretend to be someone else. So if the FSB is conducting an operation and created a bunch of phony accounts, that's a form of fraud, and you clearly that's, that's prohibit that. The, that's not the only problem that exists with government-sponsored disinformation and propaganda. Uh, uh, is is doing it through bots. Let's get back to the idea. If, if of, you of have an account, would, hold on a second. You if you have an account, are you comfortable? Are you comfortable with the idea of Russian or Chinese propaganda flourishing on social media platforms? Twitter, Twitter already allows them to publish on. I'm on asking their platform. you if you're comfortable with that. Well, look, I think that if a foreign government... Yes or a no? Foreign, no, hold on a second. It's more complicated than that. If a foreign government wants to have a Twitter account, is 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 it up to David Sachs to say, no, they can't have an account? Let them have an account. It will be... Hold on a second. It will be clearly account? labeled. They use that hold on a second. Hold on a second. I, Can I, I think it's irrelevant whether it's a government account. I, I think what's relevant is what the account does. No, what's, what what's relevant account, is... Whether it's, if it's a, go a legitimate government account is spreading misinformation or propaganda. In whose, so, in whose view? Look, let me just finish my point, okay? It matters a lot what pe who people purport to be on these platforms, okay? If the Russian government wants to post a tweet, or the Chinese government, or the Ayatollahs, if they want to publish a tweet, obviously, I probably don't agree with it. It's probably part of their, you know, of their government propaganda, sure. But as long as it's correctly labeled, I don't think anyone's going to be fooled by it. That's really the point. The problem is where, where you actually have a problem is when you have a disinformation operation conducted by a foreign government where they're posting things under accounts from people that appear to be in Iowa or something, and they are signal boosting with a bunch of bots and fake accounts. Elon will do a better job wiping that out, though he'll get rid of those bots better than the current Twitter management because they've been it's not utterly unable to do it for the last 10 years. It's not just of bots and a signal boosting problem. You're just you're, that's right. oversimplifying the nature of the problem. Well, look, let, I'm let, sorry that there are people. I'm sorry there's people in the world who post things that you disagree with. Okay. Let's but talk about. Let's, let, let's hang on, guys. Let's 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 uh, let's talk about Donald Trump before we get to the end of this segment. Uh, Tim, obviously, you wrote the book on Trump. He has said he he he's not going to come back to the platform even if he's allowed. But how significant would it be if Elon Musk and his management team decide to unblock and unban? The president. Well, I think I think we have to say what are we doing when when anyone is banned and anyone who's banned is brought back in. What are the standards around that? And I think that that has to be clarified. I don't think Facebook or YouTube or Twitter has done a very good job of that. Um, I think historically newspapers have tried to address that problem and have found mechanisms for doing that in a in a real time basis around categories of expression that involve lying and propaganda and manipulation. It is never going to be perfect, but something has to be in place. It's ridiculous to think that this is a left versus right argument. This is an argument about preserving high quality information in the service of, of media platforms doing a better job of informing the public. It is and, no more complex David, than that. 
David, well, the problem do you is, think the, that President the Trump, David, that is, David, do you think President yeah. Trump should be unbanned even if he is spreading misinformation? Okay, Here, here's the basic problem. There's no such thing as a truth API. I know you'd like to be able to say, well, oh, that tweet, in my opinion, is false, and therefore we should disband it. The problem is when you do that, you empower a, a special class of people. You're empowering these basic mandarins in the content moderation de department of these companies to decide what are the boundaries of free speech for all of us, and they should not be in the position to do that. If somebody's willing to sign their name to a tweet, okay, and they are who they purport to be, and it's not in a category of speech that the Supreme Court has already Rule to be harmful, they should be allowed to say it. But look, the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court, hold a second, the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court provides, the Supreme Court provides plenty of guidance. But we're running into a hard break, um, so I'm going to let you guys continue this debate offline. David Sachs <laughs> uh, uh, of Craft Ventures, always good to have you on the show. Tim O'Brien of our very own Bloomberg Opinion, so much to continue to talk about. startup Bolt being sued by its most prominent customer, Authentic Brands Group, which owns Forever 21, says Bolt not only failed to deliver promised technology, but during its integration with Forever 21, the company lost out on more than $150 million in online sales. The complaint also says Bolt raised funding at an increasingly high valuation by, quote, consistently overstating the nature of its integration with ABG Brands. Bolt responding, saying the claims are without merit. Coming up, Roger McNamee here to talk all things Twitter and Elon Musk and how Jack Dorsey fits into this dramatic takeover. That is next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. Twitter's 8K just out, and we are getting new details on the deal and Elon Musk's agreement to buy it. Roger McNamee, who knows a thing or two about social media, he's the author of Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe, and a longtime tech investor. Roger, I know you were listening to our conversation earlier with Tim O'Brien and David Sachs, and you don't think this is about free speech at all. Why? Well, I just think that the free speech conversation is off target. That fundamentally, when you introduce algorithms and the amplification of content for attention, as Twitter does, what happens is that the algorithms are going to seek out the content that produces the greatest reaction, which is generally speaking going to be the most extreme content. Now, let's put not just political content, but all extreme content. And it's going to give that disproportionate weight. And so the real conversation we need to be having is not. You know, in my opinion, everybody should be allowed on a platform like Twitter, but no one should have the benefit of being able to have their stuff amplified disproportionately to crowd out mm. other voices, because I think that's so, incredibly dangerous. Let's use the example of Donald Trump. Should Donald Trump be kept on Twitter even if he is spreading lies and misinformation? Well, to be clear, I think that Twitter has a responsibility. All these internet platforms have a responsibility to try to protect democracy, something that they have done a truly horrific job at. And as Twitter's currently constructed, you know, it it's not just Trump. It's all kinds of extreme voices across the entire spectrum are drowning out the thoughtful and factual things that might also be there. And at the end of the day, by framing it in political terms like that, I think we really do a disservice to this conversation. Okay, but it is a, a concrete example. It is a concrete example that I think helps to For sure. understand the broader point. Right. As currently so, I, would, I would not allow him back on. I would not yeah. allow on many of the incredibly harmful people are there. I mean, the problem with Twitter, there's two core problems, and they both represent opportunities for Elon Musk. The first is that even though it started with one of the best ideas ever in the history of the Internet, Twitter has never successfully monetized itself. The company, I believe, still has a huge net loss cumulatively since it was started. And given its influence with politicians, celebrities, and journalists, Twitter should have been able to find a path to much greater profitability than it's had. It's so influential. The second part of the problem here is that they have a set of terms and of, of service that are designed to protect people on the platform. And they have done a horrible job of moderation and a horrible job of enforcing the terms. I actually give them credit for trying, particularly in 2020, to do a better job of that. But I think they really have not done a good job. And COVID disinformation is a great example of something that just ran rampant. But okay. there's also an enormous amount of abuse of groups that are, shall we say, out of power, right? So particularly people of color, women, and others who use Twitter in order to have a voice. I mean, it's one of the great things that Twitter does is it gives those who are out of power a voice. The problem is that the algorithms also allow those who want to suppress those voices to do that suppression very effectively. So, Roger, there's a lot we don't know about Elon Musk's intentions for Twitter. He may not know exactly what he wants to change. I'd love to hear your prediction. How does Twitter look different under Elon Musk in, let's say, two years? You know, I, Emily, I don't honestly know, because here's what's really weird about this deal. So Musk came to Twitter's board, what, a little bit more than a week ago, with a proposal to buy the company, 
yet he had no financing, no plan, and he had not filed the proper paperwork with the Securities and Exchange Commission. So the board reacted as one would expect. It engaged a poison pill and it said, slow down. And then a few days later, all of that gets reversed. And the deal is suddenly accepted. And there is financing now. But as far as I know, no plan has been shared with shareholders. And the filings issues with the SEC have not been resolved, to my knowledge. And so you have a situation where a serial violator of securities laws is being allowed to do one of the largest go private transactions in history without any scrutiny, which is disappointing, but I think not surprising mm. in this environment. And, you know, I just think of this as shareholders. The problem with going private transactions is that the people doing the buying know what they're going to do, and they have a plan to create value. The people doing the selling are not party to that. And there's something fundamentally unfair. You know, I do believe there's a lot of opportunity in Twitter to create value. And I really believe the public shareholders would go along with it if somebody told them what the plan was and did so in a convincing way, the same way Jeff Bezos has done repeatedly at Amazon and the way that Reed Hastings did repeatedly at Netflix. Now, what's interesting is this could never have happened at Facebook this way, given the dual class share structure, the power that Mark Zuckerberg still wields there. And I wonder if you think that's a good or bad thing, given how much you have critiqued Facebook. Well, to be clear, I think dual class equity is a terrible idea and should not be permitted. You know, I just think it's totally contrary to the shareholder interest. And again, in the case of, of Twitter, I believe the company's been very badly managed. I mean, this board allowed the company to operate with a CEO who had a full-time job at another company. It's now accepting a transaction from somebody who I think is the CEO of, what, four other companies? You know, I just look at this as a massive policy failure at every level. And again, this is nothing to deprecate Elon Musk. He may have a great plan. In fact, I hope he makes Twitter a lot better. But at the same time, the things he talks about most are actually the areas in which Twitter is most flawed. And the proposals he's offered for fixing those things are not obviously fixes in a world where Twitter monetizes through advertising using algorithms to amplify the most extreme speech. Interesting. Uh, you mentioned Jack Dorsey and his role. Uh, he tweeted earlier that uh, thanking Elon for taking Twitter out of a quote-unquote impossible situation, which is certainly uh, interesting commentary given that he was the one in charge for so many years. Roger McNamee of Elevation Partners. Always great to have you, Roger. We could continue this conversation for hours. We'll have to leave it here. Time now for our crypto report and our crypto contributor, Shanali Basik. Shanali, MicroStrategy recently turned to a bank to borrow against its own Bitcoin to buy more Bitcoin. And that bank that it turned to was Silvergate. You've got a special guest who knows a thing or two about that. Yeah, absolutely, Emily. I want to bring in Silvergate CEO Alan Lane now because he's been really facilitating this and a lot more in the cryptocurrency space when it comes to loans. Alan, thank you so much for joining us. Why are you comfortable lending against Bitcoin to this degree and how have regulators become comfortable with it? 
Yeah, I appreciate the question and, and the opportunity to talk a little bit about Silvergate and, and, and what we do here. We've actually been banking the Bitcoin and broader cryptocurrency ecosystem since early 2014. Uh, so we've been doing this now for, you know, for several years. And um, when we first started, it was Bitcoin only. It was before Ethereum and all the other tokens. And, um, you know, as you're aware, Bitcoin is a digital bearer asset. And it trades 24 hours a day, seven days a week around the world. And so um, that really gets to, to the heart of your question, which is when we're lending against Bitcoin, we take the private keys as collateral for our loan. We have possession of those keys and we have the ability if our borrower doesn't pay us back or if we need to satisfy a margin deficiency, we can actually liquidate the Bitcoin and we can we can sell it 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So but it's Alan, actually so, you know, yeah, Bitcoin is so volatile, though. I mean, how does that work for you when one day it's forty six thousand dollars and the next day it's thirty eight thousand dollars in such a short amount of time within weeks? Does that create a uh, create complications for you? in terms of taking it as collateral? Well, it certainly could, um, and that gets to some of the design features um, of our SEND Leverage product. So we call the product SEND Leverage. SEND is actually an acronym, and it stands for the Silvergate Exchange Network, which is the 24-7 access to um, fiat banking rails that we provide to the digital currency industry. And we bank companies such as Coinbase and Square and, Coin and, and Gemini and Kraken and, um, it's, you know, et cetera. And, um, we enable them to move U.S. dollars 24 hours a day, seven days a week across our platform. Um, and then that gets to the heart of our ability then to also sell Bitcoin quickly if we need to. Now, so far, we've been doing this lending now for a little over two years. We've not had to um, liquidate anybody's Bitcoin um, because of the fact that we start in a very over-collateralized position. So um, someone has to pledge more Bitcoin um, to us than what we're willing to okay. lend to them. So we build in some cushion up front. So let's switch gears here and talk about DM because you guys had bought the assets when the, the project really started here by Facebook looked to sell. What does this mean for you and your push into stable coins? And does it mean that you'll be a much bigger player moving forward working with regulators? Sure. Well, as as to um, how big we'll be, that's all to be determined. Um, you know, our goal isn't to be a specific size, but rather to help our customers solve the problems that they're trying to solve in this ecosystem. And a stablecoin, as you know, is meant to be, it, it's a tokenized dollar. So, um, and um, different from Bitcoin, which we were just discussing, which can be very volatile because its price is really set by market factors. It's really just supply and demand. Whereas with a stable coin, what we're trying to do is we're trying to keep the value of that token at a stable price. Um, and in the case of a dollar-backed stable coin, it would be $1 would equal $1 one Silvergate issued stablecoin token. Mm -hmm. um, now, we currently bank all of the existing regulated stablecoin issuers in the United States. That would be Circle um, with their USDC token, um, as, as well as the Gemini dollar, the PAX dollar, and TrueUSD. They all use our platform, the Silvergate Exchange Network, and our APIs to facilitate minting and burning of their stablecoins. And what we're trying to do is bring it. So those existing stablecoins, mm -hmm. 
by the way, they're primarily primarily used for for DeFi, for um, cryptocurrency trading. Um, what we're trying to do is bring a stablecoin into the market that would primarily be used for commerce and cross-border remittance. And the DM protocol was purpose-built for payments, and that's why it was attractive for us. Um, and we're excited to now own that technology and to bring a stablecoin to the market, right. um, hopefully by the end of this year. Alan, we'll have to have you back as regulators put more guardrails on this industry. That's Silvergate Bank CEO Alan Lane. Emily, back All to right. you. All right. Alan, thanks. Coming up, it is not the ring that rules them all, but it can track your sleep, heart rate, and even your body temperature. We're going to see how it fares or will fare in the crowded field of wearables in an exclusive interview with Aura next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The Finnish wearable tech startup is getting a new leader. Tom Hale, former president of Momentum Global, which owns SurveyMonkey, in charge of growing their wearable subscription business, specifically the fitness ring that tracks sleep, heart rate, body temperature, and more. Let's talk about it all in our exclusive interview with Tom Hale himself and Yuri Kim, managing partner at Forerunner Ventures and Aura chair of the board. Tom, I want to start with you. How do you think Aura will stand out in a very crowded field of wearables amongst giants like Apple? Well, Aura is a smart ring that delivers you personalized health data, insights, and guidance that foster healthy habits. But we started with sleep because it's the foundation of health. 99% of us will sleep every night. 10 to 15% of us will exercise regularly or say that we will. 
And sleep is just, it's a universal solvent. It helps you feel better, perform better, improves your mood, reduces your appetite, increases energy, improves your complexion. It reduces inflammation. It's, it's a nightly habit for most of us, and most of us don't do it very well. The ring as a form factor is really differentiated because of the location on the body gives you a more accurate signal. Most consumer friction around wearable technology is about accuracy, relevancy, and especially battery life and wearability. Aura's ring addresses these head on and is like the sleek, small, powerful uh, computer on your finger with a strength that's 100 times uh, stronger than Aristable. Now, Yuri, the former CEO, Harpeet Singh Rai, stepped down. Why is that and why do you think Tom is the person for the job? You know, I think that, um, sorry, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we really thank Harpreet for all, all the contributions that he's made to the company. And I think that right now this transition is uh, indicative of where the company is in its scale and stage of growth. And Tom's really the leader that we need right now. With this CEO search, we were looking for a nuanced combination of deep technical and product expertise with, uh, with an authentic cultural fit with our international team and aspirational mission. It was a really tall order. And Tom immediately rose to the top. He brings decades of technology leadership across complex consumer and B2B companies. He's got knowledge of subscription business models and driving international expansion forward. He's got situational experiences in scaling teams from hyper growth through IPO, all of which is critical to Aura in this next phase of growth. Now, Tom, you've got some interesting sports partnerships. I know Chris Paul is a user, Lindsey Vaughn, partnerships with the NBA, WNBA, NASCAR, F1. How do you think these kinds of relationships can help drive growth? Well, everybody aspires to be like a superhuman, but not everybody can be Chris Paul. <laughs> uh, but, you know, exercise is only one portion of the equation of health. Sleep is the other part. And quite frankly, when we start to hear about the, the, the travel, the, the troubles that some of our ambassadors are facing, you know, learning, learning to sleep better, it's really inspiring to everybody. We all want to be like Lindsey Vaughn, but, you know, we can relate to her. And I think that's really one of the powers of, of Aura is that it's available for everybody. I, I know that personally for myself because, you know, in the fall of this year was a pretty stressful year, and, and I was my sleep was, was really hammered. I ordered an Aura ring over the holidays, improved my sleep and my overall health within a matter of weeks. And when I saw that, that, that power, that behavior, that, that just made it clear that, that this was an opportunity I had to jump at. Now, Aura is now valued at $2.55 billion, Yuri. Is an IPO coming up soon? Will we see something like that this year? You know, we're just get starting, getting started here. We're eager to build out our membership experience for both the individual consumers as well as our enterprise partners. When we originally invested in Aura's Forerunner back in 2019, we always believed in the big vision of changing population level health. That with each ring, each night of sleep, all of this would ladder up to data and insights that could really save people's lives. We're beginning to deliver on those aspirations, and as we scale, we'll certainly consider the best financing paths to support growth, including going public and being available for all to take part in our collective success. But for right now, we've got our heads down, and we're going to continue to deliver the best experience for our members. Tom, how are you thinking about the macroeconomic environment? Obviously, markets are in turmoil. I, I think we're starting to see it bleed into the private markets. Inflation is a big concern for all consumers. Well, you know, interestingly enough, uh, stress and anxiety is really good for our business. 
Uh, so quite frankly, <laughs> I think we, we might see some benefits from that. Uh, but clearly the macro market is, is one we got to pay attention to. And, and frankly, we're just here for the long term to build our business and build the value for our customers. Yuri, I got to ask you, women hold just 6.7% of board roles, uh, board chair roles globally. So, you know, the fact that you're in that seat um, means a lot. What more can we do to move the needle here? You know, it, it's a stat I actually recently learned myself. I did know that it was a rarity to, to be a chairperson of a board. Um, I've been, you know, honored to serve on the Aura board since 2019. And I took over because the team asked me to. They felt like I had a collaborative leadership and communication style that could bridge the various voices around the table. And it turns out I'm like strong communication and listening skills are two of the most helpful skills to have in leading a board. So. You know, I know companies are working hard to add women to their boards. I think that it's about 20% now um, of women holding board seats globally, which is good, but not great. Um, I think further elevating women to board chair positions not only adds those diverse voices to the decision making, but also fundamentally okay. changes the way boards are run. Amen. To that, uh, Yuri Kim of Forerunner Ventures, chair of the Aura Board, along with Aura CEO Tom Hale. Thank you both. We'll keep watching. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Big day tomorrow again. Earnings from Meta, PayPal, Pinterest. We'll also be joined by Ann Wojcicki of 23andMe. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg.